The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 10th, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the debut weekend for the new XFL. Winners were the Houston Roughnecks, DC Defenders, New York Guardians, and your St. Louis Battlehawks with the H capitalized. We'll also discuss the Houston Rockets' latest effort to revolutionize the NBA, a move to extreme small ball. Finally, we'll review the latest entry in ESPN's 30 for 30 series, a two-part documentary on Michael Vick. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is the author of the books, Word Freak, in a few seconds of Panic, and the bard of the original XFL, Stefan Fatsas. Hey, Stefan. I like that new title, Josh. We'll get into that momentarily, your XFL writing career. With us from Los Angeles today, it's Slate staff writer and the host of Slow Burn Season 3, Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel. Good morning or afternoon. Well, I guess it's still morning where you all are. So good morning. Thank you. And you've got more Slow Burn tour dates this week, LA on Tuesday, the 11th, and San Francisco on Thursday, the 13th. Stefan and I were both at the DC show, which was amazing. It was a really, really good show and a good time. So if there are folks on the West Coast who are considering going in LA on Tuesday or San Francisco on Thursday, I would highly encourage you to attend. We did not pay Josh to say that. He said it's all of his own free will. And as somebody who is notoriously self-deprecating, I will say that the shows went really well. So uh, I think you should come if you're in LA or San Francisco or in one of their surrounding areas. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Let's stipulate that more tackle football, more lifelong ambulatory injuries, more concussive and subconcussive blows is not what society needs. It hasn't even been what society has wanted. Wikipedia lists 18 dead football leagues, most of them since the 1960s, some of them with names you might recognize, the mid-1970s WFL, the mid-80s USFL, and some that you might not, like the FXFL. There was even one last year, the Alliance of American Football, which was a disaster. And of course, in 2001, there was the XFL. It was started by Vince McMahon of the World Wrestling Federation and Dick Ebersol of NBC Sports and was, in the words of the headline on my Wall Street Journal TikTok on its demise, one of the biggest flops in TV history. That was a very fun story to report and write, and I'm looking forward to talking more about it, Josh. Uh, And now the XFL is back. The reboot is bankrolled by McMahon, but this time the focus is on football, not cheerleaders, wrestling announcers, player nicknames, and the promise of extra football violence on top of your usual football violence. Because as McMahon crowed the first time around, the NFL was full of panty-waist rules. The new A-team XFL opened over the weekend, all the usual caveats, small sample size, first games, etc. But on the whole, the product was actually pretty interesting. That doesn't mean that, for reasons we'll get into, the XFL will succeed, but it does mean that it feels like 
a serious endeavor and not a marketing gimmick. Were you intrigued, Joel? Um, <laughs> after all that preamble, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? It's so I was kind of interested because I will watch any football at first, but I guess maybe I'm sort of jaded. I was a huge USFL fan, and that was taken away from me. And I was, you know, a very impressionable age. And I thought that was really good football. They had guys like Jim Kelly, Reggie White, Herschel Walker, uh, Gerald Ice McNeil, who a lot of Houston Gamblers fans will remember. Um, that was a league that had guys in it that were NFL players that just happened to be playing in another league. This league I looked at and I was like, well, I, Jake Silvers and, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, it's just really hard to get excited about football when it's players that you're not you know, that you know are not good enough to play in the NFL. I mean, I read something where the average salary for this league was going to be about $55,000 a year. So you know that these dudes are not even on the, like, uh, they're not really on the NFL level. And in the quality of the play, you can kind of see that too. And I just don't know how much longer that would hold my interest like with anything else. Um, I think like all these leagues have a great start. People are very excited at first. They do really good TV ratings and people are like, oh, that's not that bad. I really like football, especially the week after the Super Bowl. And then like you get four or five weeks down the line and you forget this, these, these players, this league ever exists. Well, we had a conversation on the show after the first week of the AAFL and it was clearly a debacle after week two. But after week one, we were like, yeah, this wasn't that bad. This was like better than, than I expected. So week two is obviously the bigger test. For these leagues, because you're going to get rubberneckers, you're going to get people who are interested and the bar, I think, is so low because the expectation is that it's going to look terrible, that um, this is just going to be a stunt or a gimmick and that the players are all, um, as Joel said, sub NFL level. And then when the league is passable, and you're like, oh, this does actually look like football, then uh, you're you're pleasantly surprised. But will you actually tune in? for week two. Um, Joel, I'm kind of surprised to hear you say that about the players because you're somebody who played, you know, high level Texas high school football, you played college football and you more than, you know, most people are aware of how many great football players there are in this country that um, don't make it in the NFL for various reasons. And you also love college football where the quality of play is, you know, we all know and understand that it's below the NFL and that doesn't do anything to dampen our interest in it. The issue is that you're creating a league out of nothing. They they have these fans in the stands that I watched the like New York Guardians game where they have people, I I don't know if they're like paying these people to pretend (laughs) like they're New York Guardians fans and they're wearing like the, you know, masks and, and stuff, but it's like clearly inorganic. You obviously can't be a fan of a team that didn't exist the previous day. And so that's the question is, is it possible to create a league that's sustainable and will interest people if it's sub NFL quality and you don't have a long tradition of following the teams and you don't go to like, it's not associated with a school or anything like that. Right. And that's why these are at their base marketing endeavors. These are businesses. These are not organic sports entities because you're creating them out of whole cloth. And what will make, what makes leagues like these succeed or fail, what will determine that is, yeah, whether people tune in and, yeah, whether people go buy tickets, which are reasonably priced. It's also the sustainability factor. How long are investors willing to lose 
tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in an effort to gain enough traction and find that niche in the sports schedule to allow it to operate as a modest, profitable league that gives players these very, you know, barely sub NFL level players. These are guys that will pro some of them will get invited to training camps this summer. There are usually 30 extra players on every team in camp, you know, 80 versus the final 53. And these are those players for the most part. So it's a place for them to play. And if you have decent coaching and can create a facsimile of good football, then you have an opportunity to survive. Financially, I think this is important to look at. Vince McMahon is like investing about half a billion dollars of his own money apparently into this. He sold a boatload of WWE shares in the last year and uh, according to some reports is willing to lose up to something like there were estimates by wrestling writers as much as like $375 million over the first three years. To keep Better use going. of half a billion dollars. Michael Bloomberg Running buying for ads every <laughs> TV market in America or Vince McMahon taking on the NFL. I'm shocked that McMahon had that much money by the way. I didn't know that right? he was that close to a billionaire. Do you know that? Well, he has a lot more too because according to some stories that Stefan was sending around he like cashed out a bunch of his wrestling stock and yeah. the amount he still has left is worth like two and a half billion. Unbelievable. I, I had no idea he was that wealthy. We should all start wrestling leagues. That's what we should do. Yeah, I think somebody is. And then why he's getting out of is No, you don't want to start a wrestling league because the WWE has not been doing well. I was reading one story that basically said that McMahon really needs this to succeed on some level, both reputationally and perhaps financially, though I can't imagine financially. Well, I definitely think the presentation of the game in terms of, you know, the way they broadcast and getting in-game interviews with players, all that stuff, like being able to hear, you know, the players on the field, that stuff is fantastic. And I can totally see the NFL stealing from them and doing that. But I think the overall problem here, and maybe maybe this is just me. I'm willing to admit that this is me. Football is more boring than we remember. And I think that we forget that because like we're coming off the high of like a month and a half of high-stakes NFL games, and there's playoff games and the Super Bowl, and there's all these stakes around it. But like a lot of football is like, you know, Jets versus Titans in week 10. And that football tends to be pretty boring and bad. And it, it may get good ratings because there's, you know, fan, you know, there's branding, there's fan loyalty there. It's appointment television. Fantasy sports and gambling. Fantasy sports is all these things around it. But football is really boring. And so I think the thing about the NFL is that the extreme levels of talent make it a game where things are usually won in the margins. So like there's not that much difference between teams. And like there's a few great players. And like there'll be a couple of breaks in each game that separates each team. In college football, especially the lower levels, you'll see more exciting games because, like, there'll be more variance in talent. So you'll see LSU with Joe Burrow and those, you know, small forwards he has at receiver, and they're able to break it open, and then it looks fantastic. And then you've got, like, all this fan support, and it looks different. But, like, without all of that, that's what you're left with with the XFL. You're left with, like, talent disparities because not all these players are great. And then you also got boring football, like football in and of itself, that is just boring on a week to week basis. And I just I don't know that that's enough to get anybody coming back. Like the presentation is great, but I mean, that can be stolen. I don't think anybody's going to be tuning in to hear Trey Williams say there's some dogs out there. You know, <laughs> let's play the clip of Trey Williams saying there's some dogs out there. Well, hey, Trey got isolated out there in space, made the catch. What was the design of that play? Describe it for us. It was, a, it was just a regular, you know, just uh, throw it to the running back, 
You know, just give, give me the ball. Give me, give, me a, give me some space. It's XFL football, man. It ain't no slouch league. It's a bunch of dogs out here. But I loved that part of the game. And the thing Wait, that why? I... So Here's yeah. why. No, I was about to tell you why I liked it. <laughs> I liked it because one out of every three or four interviews, the players would actually offer you the insight into something that happened on the field. The, you know, it is the kind of interview that athletes should always do. Explain what you're doing. And that is what athletes are good at. They are experts at doing this. I've made this argument before. You want to get a good interview out of, out of an athlete? Ask him to describe physically and mentally what he's actually doing or she's actually doing on the field. And in this case, there was one interview. I think it was a pick made by one of the D.C. defenders. Elijah Campbell? Is that the guy you're talking about? I think it was Raheem Moore. He talked about he was reading the quarterback's eyes and made the interception. And that's just really good. That's like, hey, this is exactly what happened. And I learned something about how football players play. The ones that I saw were all exceedingly boring. I mean, maybe it was just the luck of the draw, but it's like when you're watching an NFL game or a college game, are you ever like, what I want more of is the post-game player interview where they (laughs) say that we really left it all out on the field. I I mean, the thing that feels additive to me is hearing the coaches call in the plays and then you hear an analyst say, all right, they're saying they're going to send three receivers to the weak side and they're going to run it shallow cross. And then, and that's useful. It's like, Mm -hmm. we can all feel like Tony Romo where we know what's coming. Do we want to hear what that sounds like? We have a clip of Jim Zorn of the Seattle dragons. The electric dragons. Can't wait. Yeah. 12 personnel. I want to go. I want to go trips, right? Trips, right? Nasty Z left 22 ace. Aggie Z drive H burst. 22 ace. Oh, all right. Your server's so only calling that eight. You don't need to tell the protection. 22, 21 ace. That's all he's got to tell those offensive linemen. Watch this Z. Bingo, bingo. Coming across on the shallow. Probably needs a little more translation for the audience, <laughs> man, maybe. I mean, come on, man. Look, I, look I, like I said, you know, Josh pointed out that I played football. Do you know what I hated most about football? That. that like the terminology <laughs> plays remembering all that stuff i wasn't interested in it i was out there can you imagine the average fan thinks they want to know more about football. we're not sick of it yet joel just give us a couple weeks i don't know i think the average fan feels like it's verisimilitude and it, I, it brings me more into the game and it also as josh was just saying it kind of breaks down that wall of myth making and invincibility that the nfl wants to you know propagate you know what's the one thing joel that coaches are totally paranoid about it's like they're fucking guarding new nuclear secrets with their playbooks the xfl is saying yeah, it's just a bunch of lingo but you can hear how the sausage is made and that's kind of cool and similarly i like hearing how the sausage is made i don't like seeing how the sausage <laughs> is made that's gross but hearing it just the noise of the sausage making you know man i think that people think like with anything else people always think they want more football until they get more football. And this is exactly, you know, I, I would like to see there be more jobs, more options for aspiring football players. And maybe what'll happen is that they'll get Johnny Manziel. Maybe they'll get a guy like Mike Williams or Maurice Claret, you know, somebody that doesn't want to be in college anymore and can't get into the NFL. And maybe they'll be able to do that. But 
I think I'd just rather watch basketball and focus on basketball in the spring months instead of, you know, sit around and watch the DC defenders versus the, whatever that, what are they, the LA Avengers or whatever the hell that is. <laughs> is that what, is that what, are they called that? Is that what they call it? The They're LA called Avengers? the, uh, I wrote these down because I couldn't remember any of them. The Wildcats. I have to say, these names were terrible. I mean, yeah. <laughs> almost the only one that had anything to do with the city seemed to be the Houston Roughnecks. The Roughnecks, that's right. That's the right. Roughnecks did really well. I think they were the breakout stars. PJ Walker. Yeah, PJ Walker, the quarterback. And that leads me to my advice for the XFL. Listen up, XFL. So <laughs> eight teams, there are three uh, black head coaches, mm-hmm. Pep Hamilton, Winston Moss, and Jonathan Hayes. It I originally was like, okay, this is just like a full employment program for old white coaches. Like June uh, Jones, Helmsley, Kevin Gilbride, Jim Zorn. But then I was actually looking. It's like, okay, they have three out of eight black uh, coaches. That's definitely way better as, as a percentage than the NFL is doing. They also have women referees on uh, yep. know, every crew. And so there are opportunities here for the XFL to right the NFL's wrongs in various ways. And um, so it's a good opportunity for these these coaches clearly who aren't getting a chance uh, in the NFL, which we've talked about, but there are also opportunities, not with these like gimmicky rules and the two, I think the two forward pass thing is a big mistake because yeah. I think it delegitimizes. I also don't think league. it's going to happen that often. Right. But it just they, seems but, pointless. But the I mean, still Jim Zorn. You know what I mean? Like Jim Zorn's <laughs> not going to call a double forward pass. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah but, but, but let's, like, let's wait on the kickoff thing sure. for a second. Cause what I wanted to say is so, so in the game that I watched was New York versus Tampa and Tampa had Aaron Murray as the starting quarterback who was really good at Georgia and SEC. And now it's just, he's not very good. Like he washed out of the NFL. He threw these picks in this game. I don't want to watch this guy play <laughs> quarterback. They bring in this guy, Quentin Flowers from South Florida, who yes. put up huge numbers in the AAC, I believe it is. Never really got a chance in the NFL. And you bring him into this game and he's like doing some things, you know, as we're moving and we'll talk about this with Michael Vick, we are, we've all already talked about it with Lamar Jackson. Like this is a league where there should be like black quarterbacks starting for every team, because these are the guys who do not get opportunities in the NFL who could probably play in the NFL. Like Aaron Murray has been given every chance Matt to McGloin. play. Matt McGloin has been given 8 million chances. Like we don't right. need to see these guys. And like this, it would be an opportunity. I'm not trying to say that like every black quarterback is like great at running or is like, has been denied an opportunity to make it into the NFL. But like, let's give a chance to guys who could legitimately play but haven't been given a chance and like could make these games ex- exciting as well. Like that just seems like another way that the XFL could take advantage of where the NFL has failed. And I think that if you are the XFL, this is probably, these are very conscious decisions because what ultimately you probably want is for the NFL to invest in you. That is how the XFL will, will survive. And if the NFL finally decides that, yeah, you know, this wouldn't be bad to have an actual feeder league, a spring short. They're only playing a handful of games, like 10 games. There's only eight teams. They're starting early enough so it doesn't feel like, why am I watching football in May or June Mm -hmm. or July when the typical spring leagues would play, that they could sort of persuade the NFL by its behaviors, doing things like giving legit guys that are sort of bubble NFL players, a chance to to shine, and also implementing these kinds of rules innovations that are likely to be adopted because they're sensible and people like them. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with all that. I think 
to Josh's point too, that that's where you win. You can get the guys like Quentin Flowers. You can get the guys like I think of like Vince Young, Reggie McNeil, who used, who was a guy at Texas A and M who was forced to change positions when he went to the NFL. Like you get those guys, and that's where you can sort of differentiate your game. You can have the sort of stuff where you have the exciting plays, the running quarterbacks, all that stuff. The th- things that NFL teams would never do. That's more interesting than a double forward pass or like you know hearing all this you know in unintelligible terminology on the sideline like that's the kind of stuff i'd want to see why haven't i mean here's another thing and i'm sure somebody just brought it up this is an opportunity to bring in colin kaepernick like you know you're like why not we're like why i understand that like what vince mcmahon's politics are but why not colin kaepernick like if you're trying to do something different bring in some attention to your league bring in a guy who is an nfl talent that's where I would start. I know people brought up Johnny Manziel, but Johnny Manziel was bad in the CFL. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, why not? Why not cap? Well, John, Johnny Manziel tweeted out, just not playing for another league that's going to fold on you midway through the season. So I don't think Manziel is endearing himself to anybody. I mean, why yeah. not cap? Yeah, why not cap if he's willing to play? But right. to go back to what he's you said. He's not going to play in a league with a double forward pass. He's also not, right. He's probably not going to play in a league where they're going to pay him $50,000. He doesn't right. need to do that. Right. His mission and his life are bigger than that now. And if he believed that that was actually a chance to get seen by the NFL and be taken seriously, maybe he would do it. But the reality is, I bet he's beyond that at this point. And his his point is that this league is blackballing me. I don't need to prove a fucking thing to the NFL. I'm ready to play in the NFL. But uh, and but to go back to something you said at the very beginning, Joel, you liked the USFL back in the 1980s when you were 12 years old because it was. You know, they were signing guys from the NFL. They were like, they were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to get into a bidding war for players and right. get them to come. No league has survived trying to do that in football right. or other sports. So that ain't going to happen. So the way that a league like this has to succeed is to sort of hit that market, that time slot that maybe people would tune in finance it responsibly so it has some durability and lasts more than a season or two or three. You know how the USFL happened for me too? I w- First of all, I was seven. I was, yeah, I was, I was much younger. <laughs> the Houston Gamblers were good. The Houston Oilers were bad at that time. And the Gamblers had NFL talent all over the field. Like, like the, and they ran the run and shoot, which at that time was sort of like mm-hmm. this weird, exciting offense. All the things that we've been talking about that would be intriguing to, to, to football fans that's what the USFL had in Houston, at least at the time. And I don't know that, like, playing with Aaron Murray or, you know, whoever, Philip Nelson or whatever the hell, like, I mean, in, in Tampa, like, I just don't, I mean, is that is that really enough? Is that enough? Would you be more interested in seeing that than Jameis Winston? I don't know. Do you think the next XFL segment we do will be about the league going under or will it be about the XFL, whatever the hell they're calling their Super Bowl? What's your prediction, Joel? Yeah, probably the we'll check in at the end for this the XFL bowl and be like, well, nobody paid attention to any of that. <laughs> All right, we've got that on tape. Wait, what about you guys? Yeah, don't don't put me out here. What do you all think? I think it'll last at least a season. It'll last at least a season. There's yeah, no, there's I, I no way it's folding this year. No, I don't think that McMahon can suffer the embarrassment of it folding. So I think he is willing to lose whatever money he needs to lose to allow this to keep going. And I bet it comes back next year too. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we will continue our conversation about Vic, the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary about the quarterback, Michael Vic. We will talk about it in our third segment of the regular episode and then uh, continue the conversation because we had a lot to say about it for the bonus. If you want to hear that and you're not a Slate Plus member, it's just $35 for the first year. and You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. On January 31st, the Houston Rockets beat the Dallas Mavericks 128 to 121 behind 35 points from James Harden, 32 from Russell Westbrook, typically gaudy numbers from the team's two stars. What wasn't typical about this game for Houston was that they didn't play anyone taller than six foot six. The first time that it happened in an NBA game since, uh, according to the Elias Sports Bureau, the New York Knicks fielded such a lineup in a loss to the Chicago Zephyrs in 1963. Let's look at the high scores from that game. Walt Bellamy, oh. 34 for the Zephyrs. Uh, cleaning up inside the Knicks, who uh, that loss took them to 15 and 39. They were led by Johnny Green with 24. Never heard of Johnny Green. The Rockets were playing this way in part due to an injury to their center, Clint Capella. But last week, the Rockets traded Capella to the Hawks as part of a four-team deal. They got back Robert Covington, wing player. He's listed at 6'7". So this appears to be what Houston is doing now. So far, it's treating them decently well. They're 4-2 and two since going small. They've got a win over the Lakers. They'd be 5-1 and one if the Jazz hadn't hit a ridiculous buzzer beater against them on Sunday. Stefan, so what do we make of this? Oh, as a short person, I like watching shorter <laughs> basketball players play basketball. As a six foot six person, I would be the tallest uh, member of the Houston Rockets. I like that. Yeah. Not tallest right. member. They've still got Tyson Chandler. He just doesn't play. Right. But if you were, you wouldn't start, though, is the problem, Josh. I would not start. Yeah. Well, it depends on how, how good your three point shot is. I mean, I don't know. Can either of you shoot from distance? Uh, I cannot shoot from distance. I'm really more of a, an inside player. I've, I've been rendered obsolete by the NBA. <laughs> I was a streaky player, but yeah, I, I could, I could, I could make some some long shots. All right, there you go. You fit in then. I mean, as a fan of watching any sort of weird thing happen in a <laughs> conventional framework, I like watching this because it is inherently fascinating. I mean, isn't it? You know, it's always fun to see when a giant guy is posting up someone who's 6'3 or 6'4, and you get to see more of that. And on offense, you get to see where the physical disparities between these admittedly all very large men occur. So watching a team of 6'5 players run and weave and run a different kind of offense to take advantage and exploit larger, less mobile players is interesting to watch. Is it successful, potentially? I mean, we don't have much data yet to see whether this is going to work long in the long run, but Rockets seem to think that this is doable. Right. I think a lot of it is the function of, you know, desperation, too. I mean, in a lot of ways, D'Antoni and Daryl Morey are essentially, this, this is for their jobs these next few months, right? Like, if it, if it doesn't work here, it's all over. And so they're going all in with this style of basketball that everybody already hates. Because I, I just think it's like people are fascinated by what the Rockets are attempting, but basically they're doubling down on the style of basketball that everybody's already said they hate it, right? Like nobody likes 
the idea that the Rockets isolate and just work to make these open three-point shots. Mm-hmm. At, at, this, at this point, I read something that they 44% of their shots are threes, which is already like the highest percentage in the league. It's only going to get work. It's only going to get crazier from here on out, right? It'll probably get, you know, more than 50% of their shots would be threes with that with that sort of short lineup. And so I guess like we're just looking at a team being very desperate, doubling down on something that people already hate, that has questionable, like we're not sure that this is actually going to work. To your point, Stefan, you said, is this going to work? Is this going to be a success? Well, I guess it depends on like what you think the Rockets are actually capable of, right? Does anybody right. actually think that they're better than the Lakers or the Clippers now because they've done this? I don't know. It also depends on what Tillman Fertitta, the Rockets owner, thinks. Like, is is it enough to make it to the second round with this lineup? Is it enough to challenge to you know to be in the top four, top five in the West? I don't know. But I just tend to think that, you know, teams doing things out of desperation doesn't tend to work. I feel like the Rockets already sort of missed their window by panicking earlier and they're panicking again. And we're just going to see another, you know, postseason failure from them right now. They did beat the Lakers with this lineup. And what that game, I think, showed, Josh, is that the Rockets are going to force teams to react to them as opposed to vice versa. And that did seem that is what kind of happened in that game. Well, we can't take anything that Joel takes seriously. He's got this kind of hometown bias. He's been burned by. <laughs> I'm a Lakers fan. He's been burned by the Rockets so many times that he's now lying <laughs> to himself about what team he's even a fan of. And so uh, <laughs> I think we should, we should just mute him for a second. Now, uh, I mean, the, so the Rockets do not have the courage of their convictions when it comes to, for example, Hong Kong. But when it comes to playing a particular <laughs> oh, wow. style of play, they were the team that really ushered in three-point shooting into the the league uh, to the extent that it, that it is now. And you have to maybe give them credit for not going halfway in their approach to uh, whether it's shooting from distance or whether it's to playing small. And and I think it is fascinating as a fan, as somebody who doesn't particularly care how this experiment goes, Joel, to see it and to see a team try something different. And uh, yeah, and you, you, you kept using the word desperation, Joel. Maybe it's just recognition of what their strengths are, what their roster allows, and what is at this point the most likely path to modest success and who knows what else in the playoffs. Well, to defend Joel, so this is a this is a team that was, you know, Chris Paul's hamstring prevented them from beating the Warriors and sure. going to the finals. And so what Daryl Morey has done with his moves, I think is make the team worse. Like I think the team has gone from that ceiling and they've declined and getting Russell Westbrook was I think if you called that desperation, you wouldn't necessarily be wrong. You might want to use a different term that they were, you know, using their assets and, you know, whatever you want to describe it as. It was kind of reckless and all in in a way that I think you can appreciate, like if you think that that teams and general managers are often risk averse, but it doesn't seem like it necessarily made the Rockets better. And now he's like maximizing based on the worst roster that he put together. And so it seems like on the one hand, maybe it's like, okay, they're leaning into what they're doing best. On the other hand, they're like in a hole and they're continuing to dig, maybe not in the correct direction. Right. Well, I think if we go back about a year or or so and I was on the podcast then and I said, Oh, I just think there's a value 
and not allowing the Warriors to punk you, like mentally, and just sort of staying the course. Because, like, you're right. Like, the Rockets were literally a Chris Paul hamstring away from toppling what many people thought was the best team that they had ever seen in NBA history or one of the most talented teams they'd ever seen. And then they gave up on it. Like, the next year, you know, just because they had a flame out, you know, last year in the playoffs, that people just sort of gave up on them and, and Maury gave up on them. And then he made this move to get Russell Westbrook. And I just thought, you know, Chris, Chris Paul still playing well this year. Um, they could roll back Clint Capella. Yeah, I, actually, you know, just back up for a second. I was thinking about the Utah Jazz for some reason the other week. Just the fact that like in the 90s, they just kept rolling the same team out year after year after year. And then they finally had a breakthrough. The only thing holding them back was Michael Jordan. And I just think that, that that's what the Rockets could have done, that they could have kept rolling it back. This is a year that it was wide open and they tried something weird with getting bringing in Russell Westbrook. And it hasn't quite worked out the way that they thought. And they're like, oh, shit, now we got to try something else. And so they keep doubling down on this sort of nonsense and it's just making them worse. And I just think if they had just stayed the course, if Daryl Morey had not wheeled and dealed, that maybe we wouldn't be they wouldn't be in this position. But I don't know. It's just it's just kind of frustrating to watch as a former Rockets fan, <laughs> now a Lakers fan, because, you know, you, you realize that you don't have those windows very often. The Rockets, the team that lost in the Western Conference Finals to the Warriors a few years ago could have theoretically been one of the five best teams in NBA history. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they gave up on it just because somebody got hurt. And um, I I'm just, enjoying I, arguing I all sides of this this issue because Westbrook is playing well. This year, he's a guy, he can't shoot at all. And right. so that seems like it's going to pose a problem for them. And this does seem like a scheme, Stefan, that will, they'll do well when teams haven't seen it before. I am extremely skeptical of them being able to ride this in the postseason. You know, PJ Tucker playing at center, that guy is going to like get worn down to a husk. They do have Tyson Chandler. They do have big guys that, you know, if, if they decide this is totally unworkable, they can adjust to some small degree but just again it's like a neutral observer like other nba teams are going to be watching this they're going to see how well it succeeds or if it succeeds and i think there is a tendency for coaches and gms to play up the downsides of moves and not focus on the upsides because all we're saying about like oh they can't defend tall guys or like nobody's going to be able to defend them and that's what came up in the in the Lakers game is that the Lakers couldn't stop them. But wait, the thing you can't defend is when they're making their shots. But are you really counting on them a to make their shots at that high of a clip every night? And also for teams in a No, it also series. opens up driving no, lanes driving for lanes Harden for and Westbrook, Westbrook especially. Mm. I don't feel like that's like they're going to be able to make shots like I mean I I watched the game where they went they missed 27 straight three point three point <laughs> shots. It's not like those shots, clearly were, did a, like those shots were well defended, you know That what did I mean? a, like that they, took they a psychological like, toll on you, clearly. Like <laughs> no nobody nobody could come through that 27 missed three game but if the same ja- person. If they're jacking up 65 threes <laughs> a game, they're going to miss a lot of shots. I mean LeBron himself It's ugly basketball. Right. It's very ugly. LeBron himself said that creates challenges for everyone in the league because you have to be on your toes and guarding a guy who's averaging almost 40 and guarding a guy who has averaged triple doubles in seasons before. So it creates a lot more space for Russ and Harden. It's weird. I mean, can you see this going even further, Joel? I mean, why stop here? Why not? You know, D'Antoni has been a proponent of, you know, seven seconds or less and, and fast basketball for most of his career. Why not just play like Grinnell, you know? Why not just <laughs> right. jack up 83s a game and 
try to score 160 points every time you play. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they got a guy, Chris Clemens, who I think was the college's leading scorer last year. And like, why they just had that guy out there and just fire up three? Let's, let's actually go even shorter. They can have that 5'11 guy, you know, James Harden can play power forward and they can just play like that and, you know, kind of live out M- Maury's dream. But I just, I mean, again, I think I've been pretty fair over the years. Like, I was like, <laughs> well, this is, the, the, the Rockets are doing this and I kind of understood why they were doing it because it was a way to counter what the Warriors were doing. And they thought this is the best possible way to beat that team. And they had sort of found a formula that allowed them to be competitive at a time when people were not trying to be competitive with the Warriors, where everybody conceded the West and conceded the league to the Warriors. And the Rockets were still trying to figure out a way to compete with them and, in, if in fact, beat them. And I was like, I understand that. But at this point, I don't understand it. And you make the point about P.J. Tucker. It assumes that. PJ Tucker will be able to withstand this. Like, I mean, he's 34 years old. He's six foot five. That is a tremendous burden. I remember reading, do you remember when, when Bron played in the finals and uh, Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving were out? Yeah, and the, I remember the, the reading. Took I, a 2 1 lead. What could, what could possibly go wrong? Right, exactly. Well, I just remember when they wrote an article about the stress that LeBron was putting on his body by like trying, by, by posting up and shooting a lot. And they were talking about the sort of stress that they put on his body and that eventually he would wear down and he would get hurt. And I could kind of envision the same thing for P.J. Tucker, like putting that sort of burden on a guy that old at that height. This doesn't seem like if you're counting on him to be around in May, that maybe this is not the best possible use of him right now. We should move on. I do feel like we didn't put enough emphasis on them getting Robert Covington because he's a really, really good defender and a oh, guy great. six seven can defend oh, bigger man. guys like that. It's not totally hopeless. And I'm just excited with running back this entire show. We're going to do the XFL and Rockets <laughs> revisited <laughs> podcast in a few months, and we'll see. We'll see where we're at. I would love to be wrong. Maybe we'll all be wrong somehow. But <laughs> um, Stefan, we also. Should close by just noting that the last time we talked to Daryl Morey, pre-Hong Kong tweet, was about his musical small ball about a team of six-inch tall players in a basketball league. So he's he's clearly got something on his, has had this on his brain. And he's got a long way to go, clearly. Six five, <laughs> six foot. Get it down to six inch. I, you know, Joe Moore follows me on Twitter. I don't want to make him upset. Like, I want <laughs> this to work out. I'm just skeptical. Prove me wrong. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. In April 2001, the Atlanta Falcons made Michael Vick the number one pick in the NFL draft. In 2004, he led the Falcons to the NFC Championship game. In 2007, Vick pleaded guilty to federal dogfighting charges. And in 2010, another three years later, he was named the NFL's Comeback Player of the Year. Vic, a two-part documentary directed by Stanley Nelson, it's part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series, looks back at all those events with an emphasis on the dogfighting scandal, led to Vic's incarceration, his suspension from the NFL, and his demonization by animal lovers. Uh, We're now about a decade, uh, I guess 12 years 
since uh, Vic pleaded guilty, Joel. It is a good time. It feels like enough distance has passed to look at what happened during and after that scandal to kind of uh, assess it a little bit more dispassionately. What did you make of the documentary and and what did you make of its portrayal of, of Vic in that period in his life? I think the thing about it is that it's hard to not sort of be sympathetic for Michael Vick. Um, you know, obviously he grew up under really difficult circumstances. There was a real cultural uh, gulf between him and his hometown and where he ended up. So I'm sympathetic with that. Um, but I guess, you know, I, it just, I don't know how to explain this, but like, and, and maybe, you know, it's in, people are different when they're in front of the camera or whatever, but like, I just kind of felt like there wasn't a lot of emotional depth or resonance there. And I don't know how to quantify that. That is just like something that I noticed as he talked, like he just, it felt like he was on a, some sort of a script rather than talking from his heart. I think about something that Vic said is something about ball, uh, jail, or, or die. And it just sounded like rap lyrics I've heard my entire life. And that doesn't mean that it's not true. It doesn't mean that like that's not something that sort of hovered over you know Vic's life as he you know made it out of Newport News to the NFL. But it just kind of felt like he wasn't a great narrator of his own life. Like a lot of what he said about his life felt a little cold to me. But the documentary itself, like showing, illustrating the extent of the cultural gulf between Newport News and Blacksburg and Atlanta and where he ended up, like that was a little bit more useful and a little bit more helpful. But like in terms of making the case for why we should or should not be sympathetic to Michael Vick, I didn't think he was particularly great at that himself. That might just be who Michael Vick is, though. Even pre dogfighting, arrest, jail, contrition. You never got the sense that Vic was going to become, and he never did really become, a sort of master marketer personality. People liked Michael Vick, but mostly for what he did on the field. Right. He wasn't a charismatic athlete that was charming and had a great sense of humor and a dynamic smile that made you want to seek him out for interviews. Kind of a dynamic and smile. He's a very good-looking dude. He's a good-looking guy. Yeah. Yeah. My wife kept saying that he looked like an R&B star from the 90s. You know? Yeah, and and I think also the connection between him and Allen Iverson, it's, it's really remarkable that these two guys are from yeah. the same place yeah. in Virginia and occupied the exact same role for the NBA and the NFL, the first stars in, in these leagues who looked the way they look, talked the way they talk, embraced hip hop uh, in terms of both, um, you know, s- the style the, of, of clothes they wore, the, their hair, um, Brave, the people yeah. that they hung out with, like being in music videos. Like, so Vic was very marketable in that sense and that he was sort of unapologetic in the culture that he came from and the cultural references that he embraced. But he didn't exploit it as much as other athletes at the time or, or since did. I don't think Vic ever became a sort of national marketing campaign figure and on a sort of really large scale. Obviously, he had marketing deals, but as a big popular figure, Vic really wasn't that. Well, yeah, you know, so I think that Vic meant something and he did, he meant something to me even too, like, because we're not that different in age. He meant something to people that, you know, at a time when like hip hop culture was sort of pathologized and like you saw a guy could embrace hip hop culture and succeed professionally and become sort of a hero to kids. Mm -hmm. It's not often that you would see somebody that had braids and had tattoos and talked the way he talked and came from where he came from become like a national star. And Vic and Iverson did have that, but like in terms of speaking on their own behalf, looking back at it, 
all these years later, because you asked me what the documentary was like, and that was what the difficulty was, right? Like that's like Vic talking on his own behalf isn't great, but in terms of representing things, I definitely thought he did that. Like I remember watching the Rubber Man, the Rubber Band Man video, uh, Ti that Vic is in, and I was like, oh shit, like this is a big moment. Like Warren Moon would have never done that, you know what I mean? Like, I, like that's just something that like you, you know, Warren Moon would have not not even been able to. It would have been people would have termed it irresponsible. The fact that Vic was able to open his arms and like authentically be himself was a really cool thing, but like he's not that interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes total sense. And I think Stefan, one issue with him as far as being a national figure is that he was really, really great in the NFL for a couple different micro periods. And the rest of his tenure was so up and down, even if you separate out the dogfighting stuff, which we'll get uh-huh. to. In a second, is he has this amazing playoff game at Lambeau Field. And I think his second year in the league, they beat Green Bay on the road 27 7. And nobody ever goes into Green Bay and beats them. And you have this moment where he goes in and just destroys the Packers and looks like he's going to take the NFL by storm. And then in, in 2005, they make it to the NFC Championship game. And then, in, and like in the couple of years before, dogfighting scandal if you like go back and look at his numbers he's like completing like half of his passes like 52 54 percent i mean he's playing really badly so there's this moment where nike is put putting him in a campaign with a michael vick experience and you have this kid going around the field like it's a roller coaster and you are seeing this sort of cultural fascination with vick and how he is changing the nfl and then just his play on the field just didn't really support that thesis. And then you get into people in the documentary talking about and Vic talking about it himself. Like he didn't prepare very well. He didn't do the things that I think he later realized in his career that he needed to do to be successful as a quarterback in the NFL. Yeah. I mean, so to his credit that he was able to like not take the preparation part of it as seriously as, you know, say a Peyton Manning would, you know, I guess to, to sort of double down on the, the that, that dichotomy there, right? And he still was able to succeed. You know what I mean? Like it's sort of a testament to what scintillating a talent he was. There is a kind of we're talking about practice. I was just going uh, yeah, yeah. to say that. But Iverson was able to rise above the we're talking about practice and be consistently great for a long time. And Vic, before the dogfighting, had, like you said, Josh, those moments of brilliance. But statistically, you look at it on the whole – and it's not overwhelming that he was like one of the top three quarterbacks in the NFL. This is a bad analogy, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Do you remember watching the documentary about OJ Simpson? And I remember reading like his statistics and seeing his career. And basically like he had like two or three really good seasons where he was on top of the world. But like the rest of it, he was like a fairly middling to mediocre running back. And like looking back at Michael Vick's career and his numbers, like that's actually what I was kind of left with. I was like, oh, wait, his impact was much more than like his actual like performance production right? yeah right yeah and i think oj was able to turn i mean oj won the the heisman so it's not it's not just his pro career that he capitalized on for marketing purposes but you, but you can say able, that about michael vick too right yeah yeah but oj was able to turn his success into you know becoming a national marketing and oj had that. that one signature season two thousand yards that nobody had ever done before yeah. all right let's talk about the dogfighting scandal and This gets into really nuanced territory. Whenever you're talking about somebody who commits a really horrifying crime 
And then you get into, okay, but is it actually worse than these other sorts of crimes? And would he have been treated better if he had been accused of, you know, domestic violence? You see, like, so many guys in the NFL get accused or even, you know, convicted or, uh, you know, suspended by the NFL and don't have this, like, dark cloud over them for the entirety of their lives. And that's fair to say. But then when you actually look at their bodies of dogs buried on his property that were killed because they weren't good enough at fighting. You have this entire operation that he financed with dogs that are, you know, attacking each other and that are are bred to kill and then again are like murdered if they they don't perform as well. It's indefensible and it certainly nobody was really defending it at the time, but I think the doc Joel makes the case that a lot of the way that the conversation played out was very heavily racialized. Yeah, I mean, this is really tough, right? Because um, nobody wants to be put in a position to where you're defending a dude who like oversaw the torture and execution of dogs. But the problem is that you have to look at like the idea that Michael Vick was arrested, went to prison, served his time. And that's not something that often happens to people that get that face those sorts of charges, especially for somebody of his financial means. Usually somebody that wealthy gets out of that sort of stuff. Like you don't see them like having to go down for that. And a thing that I didn't realize until watching this documentary was that he actually came fairly close, at least as it's portrayed in the doc, to not being charged at all before the feds came in and were like, all right, the state isn't taking this seriously enough. We're going to investigate and and punish these people. Which was interesting in the context of both local celebrity and race in Virginia. The state prosecutor talked about basically diminishing the severity of what was going on. Like there were these constant references to sort of that this was part of the culture of the area. The dogfighting was not unusual. White people did this too. And there was a clear reluctance on the part of the local prosecutor who was black to investigate the case seriously. And whether that was because of Vic's celebrity or the cultural role or the perceived cultural role of dogfighting or defending a successful local kid who was black is really complicated and hard to suss out. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely that. And again, nobody wants to be seen as like saying that this is okay, but like Michael Vick, you know, paid a real steep price for what happened. He went into bankruptcy. You know what I mean? So it's like, I guess the thing is, we're trying to figure out is, was Michael Vick's second act sincere? Like the work that he did with Humane Society, you know, the idea that he wanted to apologize for the things that he'd done and the role that he'd taken in dogfighting. And like, there's just no way to know that, right? Like he's sort of an inscrutable person already as it is. So the issue is like, do you think what happened to him is sufficient? And obviously, like, and it falls a lot during racial lines. Some people think that it wasn't enough. I don't know what else he could have done in terms of suffering another sort of penalty. But the issue is like, is Michael Vick somebody that can convey sincerity that you believe him when he says he was wrong and that he didn't mean to do that? That's a little tougher. What I believe, Joel, was that Vick was incredibly naive mm. and that before he served his time, Vick was not entirely apologetic. You know, Mm -hmm. until he was convicted, I mean, he even says in the documentary that his buddies were willing to take the fall for him, but they wanted the guy that was at the forefront. It was me they were after. But can that be true, too? That can be true, right? Because like he can be like, that sucked, that happened on my watch, but also I wasn't really involved in that. Yeah, but but also just the naivete of saying, which he also says in the film, I never really thought it was something that we would lose everything over. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe that, too. I do believe he believes that. 
So some of the most remarkable footage in this documentary is like, I would not have imagined that I would be saying this, but Rob Thomas of Matchbox 20 is like on camera. They're asking him for whatever reason, what should happen to Michael Vick? I guess that shows just how huge of a story it was at the time that anybody of any level of celebrity status was asked about this. And he was like, yeah, Michael Vick should be hung. They have a clip of Tucker Carlson. This is perhaps less surprising saying that Vick should have been executed for what he did. And then there's also this clip of Steve Harvey. Let's listen to that. Man, hold up. You trying to tell me a man got to go to jail that long for killing some dogs? Let me share something with you. Sean Bell got killed in New York City by three police officers. Kill a black man, everybody go home. You kill a dog and your ass got to go to jail. Now something is wrong with this right here. Something is wrong with this right here. What I really want to say, man, fuck them dogs. Let his ass play. Steve Harvey definitely taking things to their logical extreme, which I appreciate for debate purposes. Right. So at that time, I'm not going to say that I felt all that differently from Steve Harvey. I guess what the nuanced way of saying this is that it is important to highlight the discrepancy in the reactions to when Black people get killed or like when violence or crimes are perpetuated against Black people and the reaction that people have when it happens to dogs. And it's something I think about all the time. Like when you'll you'll see people, there was a viral video not too long ago of a guy stealing a dog away from a homeless dude because the dog, you know, was in this like dire situation. I was like, yo, there's a person right there. You know what I mean? Like there's a homeless person. You took this dog away and you felt bad for the dog. And so like sort of the, the idea that people sort of prioritize like animal rights at the expense of human rights sometimes is whatever. It also like, we know that there is some sort of hypocrisy on this, right? Like we know that like the food that we eat or the animals that, that we've domesticated and decided that are pets in the way that we treat people and the way that people eat meat in the meat processing industry or whatever, like we know that there's like those animals are treated horribly. So people note all these things and it comes up, but it doesn't mean that like we're not defending Vic. It doesn't mean that people are saying Vic should have gotten off, although Steve Harvey did kind of say that. It's just that people are like, hey man, uh, temper your response. Like we can see you, Rob Thomas. We can see you, Tucker Carlson, when you say these sort of things, when you're silent about all these other injustices, but you want somebody to get executed for fighting dogs. I think it was Todd Boyd, the uh, USC uh, cultural historian, who says in the documentary that black America saw this as white America trying to take down a rich black athlete. So the racial overlay could not have been clearer in this case. You know, Bomani Jones is is quoted a lot in the documentary, too. And I think at one point, Bomani says that you got a black backlash to the white piling on on Michael Vick. So there were these instinctive polarized responses to the case. Yeah. And credit to ESPN for taking on this issue because it is just such a minefield for all of the reasons that we've discussed. I mean, the most mail I've ever gotten for a slate piece was when I was in New Orleans after Katrina. And I might've talked about this before because it made a huge impression on me, but I was going through on a rescue boat and floodwater and there was a cat that was in a a house that had been flooded and the people that I was with, the rescuers did not take the cat with them. They were on a mission to see if there were any people 
that were still there and did not rescue any people that day. And and I wrote about that whole experience. And I think this was partly because, you know, Slate had a relationship with MSN back then and the story was on the MSN homepage. But I got hundreds of emails from people that were upset because the cat had been left behind. And there are all these stories, Joel, after Katrina, I'm sure you remember this, about people being so upset about the pets. And obviously it's sad when pets get abandoned or or die in a disaster. But there were thousands of people, predominantly black and brown and poor, who died in Katrina. And it was just so upsetting to see that I didn't get any emails about that. It was all just about this this cat. That had a very profound effect on me. And so I'm more skeptical than I think I was before about people who are extremely agitated about animals. And it's a Again, a minefield to say anything about that, but that's just how it made me feel. This is at least one of the things where there's like some racial polarization that I try to be a little bit circumspect, right? Because often I'm just like, I don't give a shit. Like, you know, if it, if if it, if the if if something happens and like it's a disproportionately like cruel response to black people, or or sort of a dehum- <clears throat> excuse me, a dehumanizing response to black people, then I'm like typically a little less um, understanding. But I think the thing with that people see with pets or animals is like there's an innocence like they didn't deserve this they didn't have anything to do that you know there's no reason for them to be here because they're just sort of like these vessels for like human affection and love or whatever and like they people could have evacuated during katrina but the pets had, right. had no choice right exactly and so i get that but i still think that like yo dude like we're talking about the differences between a human and, a, and an animal we're talking about the dog part of it but i I tend to feel like this was more about Michael Vick. Like it was, he's a, here's a chance to bring this guy down and we're going to have, people are going to have these crazy outlandish extreme opinions because people do, but I'm not so sure it was as much about the dog fighting as it was about this black, successful, different athlete who was, in a incredibly, you know, media friendly kind of crime, the kind of crime that is going to, to inflame passions. Well, I, I think you're, I was going to say, I totally disagree with you, but then I think you're, I'm starting to agree with what you said at the end of your sentence. I think once the allegations about him came out with how horribly these dogs were treated, the dogs are shot and killed execution style there's no way right that there was that he was getting away with that because of the way that people feel about crimes against animals and it's understandable like i think if it had been a backup quarterback it would have been the same i feel like maybe yeah right and it's a crime you should go to prison for it is a bad crime i guess the issue is like the disproportionate response does vic have anything to do with that or could you substitute in any generic famous black person and gotten the same sort of response. I don't know. What I found really interesting is that the one person that doesn't talk about the race component of this is Michael Vick in this documentary. He doesn't go there at all. He can't. You know what I mean? Like could, couldn't he? Why couldn't he? Because uh, because the thing is, is that people would say, well, he's not being sincere in his apology. I can't think of a time when a black person invokes racism is one of the reasons for a response to them that people are like, oh, you know what? That's absolutely right. You know, you're right, Michael Vick. The, the, the response that you got was racist and people should be held to account for that. 
he can't do that. All it would do is inflame people. So mm-hmm. he, he needs other. He knows that other people will say that for him. And it's just best that he does because he can't say it. All right, let's end there and talk more about Vic, the documentary, in our bonus segment. I will say this, if you're interested in watching, I would watch part two. I think part one is skippable. It's four hours if you watch it all together. So if you just watch part two, which gets into the dogfighting scandal in the aftermath, you'll get the meat of what's interesting here. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls, and we discussed the XFL a couple segments ago, you might recall. And no player nicknames on the backs of jerseys this time that has been eschewed. But uh, let us not forget. Let's remember some guys. XFL edition. You have some old-timey XFL player nicknames for us, Stefan? I do. I mean, the most, the most famous one, of course, was He Hate Me, Rod Smart who was on the New York and New Jersey hitman. So we're going to toss out Rod Smart and He Hate Me because that's overdone. I found a, a list of the 25 best XFL nicknames. Here are some of my favorites. I kind of like E-Rupt, E-Rupt, Eric Heron. He was on the Los Angeles X-Stream. Hit Squad, Baby Boy. Death Blow is another famous one. Chuck Wagon. Mondo, Ramondo Stalling of the Los Angeles Extreme. But I think I kind of like Chronic Y2K1, Charles Jordan of the Memphis Maniacs with an X. Maybe we should shout that one out. I think perhaps some reverence for Dr. Dre there, which we can all appreciate. Chronic Y2K1. Stefan, you're going to do a Chronic Y2K1 for us, and then we will discuss. That will be this week's Afterball segment. What is your Chronic Y2K1? For the first time in 20 years, Bob Knight on Saturday returned to the basketball arena at Indiana University where he threw a chair, choked a player, and won a lot of games. Knight was fired in 2000 after one last bit of uncontrolled rage. Now 79, stooped and slow, he was greeted, as of course you would expect, with a prolonged standing ovation. I bet Indiana builds him a statue when he dies. Pat Forty of SI compared the feelings inspired by the enfeebled Knight's homecoming to Muhammad Ali lighting the Olympic flame in Atlanta. It's a damn shame it took this long, but at least it finally happened, Forty wrote. A thawing, hopefully even a healing. John Feinstein, Knight's first chronicler, said in the Washington Post that Knight had done a lot more good in his life than bad. His return should have come long ago, but I'm happy it finally happened, Feinstein wrote. The prodigal son is finally home, better late than never. The occasion also afforded a chance to recall Knight's worst moments in his brilliant and abusive career, cursing out the Big Ten commissioner, headbutting a player, jerking a player by his shirt into the bench, kicking at a player, his son, choking a guy in a restaurant, dumping a fan in a garbage can, yelling at cheerleaders, kicking a megaphone, also campaigning for Donald Trump twice. Let's take a look at one infamous blowout at the 1979 Pan Am Games in Puerto Rico, 
Holy shit, what a week that was. The 39-year-old Knight, just 39, was the head coach of the U.S. team. Mike Krzyzewski, then with Army, was his assistant. The team of amateurs featured Kevin McHale of the University of Minnesota, Michael Corrin of UNC, Kyle Macy of Kentucky, and two high school players, Ralph Sampson and Isaiah Thomas. Knight started his visit to Puerto Rico by attending a clinic for local coaches that was sponsored by Converse, at which he announced that he was not a Converse pimp. Knight got kicked out of the tournament's first game, a 136-88 win over the Virgin Islands, because he screamed at the refs when the team was up 35 in the second half. After Isaiah Thomas missed a dunk when the team was up 14 in what would be a four-point win over Brazil, Knight got in Thomas's face and yelled, what the hell's wrong with you? Do you think I'm going to put up with this bullshit? Then came the incident. According to reports at the time and Bob Knight, the unauthorized biography by Steve Delson and Mark Heisler, here's what happened. All the teams had to share a practice gym at the Pan Am Games. The Americans were on the court. The Brazilian women's team arrives for its practice. Knight was talking to players. The Brazilians were a little loud. Knight asked Krzyzewski to ask the women to quiet down. They did, but the noise built up again, and Krzyzewski told the players that if they couldn't keep quiet, they'd have to leave the gym. A cop intervened at this point and told Krzyzewski that the women weren't going anywhere. Well, that's when Bobby Knight walked over. He was initially polite, and then he and the cop get into it. The cop allegedly pokes Knight in the eye. Knight hits him with his hand under his chin. Knight says it was a reflexive action. He and Krzyzewski actually later reenacted the move for reporters and photographers. The cop then told Knight he was under arrest. Knight resisted. When the cop was putting him into his car, Knight claimed that the cop pulled out a nightstick, poked him in the face with it, and said, God damn you, brother, this is what I'd like to use on you. Knight was locked up briefly, and he was released after the U.S. Olympic Committee officials showed up. At a hearing that Knight didn't attend, the cop testified that Knight had called the Brazilian players whores and yelled at the cop, get your dirty hands off me, and called him the N-word. Krzyzewski said that was untrue. Knight was ordered to stand trial for aggravated assault. A judge made him show up in court on the day of the Pan Am Games final, which was the United States against Puerto Rico. Knight coached the game, the U.S. won, and that's when things really got weird. While the players lined up to receive their medals, John Papanick of Sports Illustrated wrote, Knight stood in a corner of the crowded court, absorbing the continuing jeers and taunts directed at him. With several American reporters around him, Knight said, fuck them, fuck them all. I'll tell you what, their basketball is a hell of a lot easier to beat than their court system. The only fucking thing they know how to do is grow bananas. Knight cursed some more, raised his index finger in the air during the national anthem, and yelled at a photographer who accidentally nudged his eight-year-old son. Knight then demanded a press conference. Just the Americans, he said, according to Papanek, don't let any Puerto Ricans in. It lasted 45 minutes. Krzyzewski and others stood by helplessly as Knight insulted Puerto Rico and intimidated reporters, Papanek wrote. The New York Times reported that Knight called Puerto Rico a hellhole. At one point, as recounted by Papanek, Knight turned to Puerto Rico's delegate to the International Basketball Federation, a guy named Gennaro Marchand. You were supposed to help us, Knight said. We tried, Marchand said, but you have no respect for anybody. I have respect for people who respect me, Knight said. 
You do not deserve respect, said Marchand. You treat us like dirt. You have said nothing but bad things since you got here. You are an embarrassment to America, our country. Knight stalked out of the press conference, Papanik said. You are an ugly American, Marchand shouted after him. Knight didn't return to Puerto Rico for the trial. He was sentenced in absentia to six months in prison and fined $500. After returning to Indiana, he actually offered to resign. The university's president, of course, turned him down. A little over a year later, in January 1981, Frank DeFord wrote his classic profile of Bob Knight, The Rabbit Hunter. He quoted a Midwestern coach. None of that stuff in Puerto Rico had to happen. On the contrary, he could have come out of there a hero, but he's a bully, always having to put people down. Someday, I'm afraid, he's going to be a sad old man. That Puerto Rican delegate comes off as a hero. Hero. Somebody stood up to him. Hero. I mean, the thing is that I mentioned he was 39. I mean, his reputation was already firmly established as an asshole. Um, Papanik reported in that story that at least 13 players had left the Indiana program since Knight had taken over a few years earlier. One of them was Larry Bird, which I totally forgot that Bird went there as a freshman and basically just left and didn't tell anybody. Yeah. Didn't even get a chance to play there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, a testament to, I mean, man, I, I, certainly that was a different time in sports, but like that guy, I mean, Bobby Knight, man, you know, he was, everything that we think about, like when we talk about like course of discourse and everything and all that, like he was like at the, he was like one of the pioneers of that. Like that, like that dude was Fox News TV before we even knew what that was. One of America's least surprising uh, Trump supporters, I would say. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, there are a couple of uh, anecdotes in the DeFord profile, which I recommend reading, that are just, you know, so Trumpian and reflect uh, who Bob Knight was. He's, uh, there's, a, there's a scene where he's talking to one of his former players, Joby Wright, who's black, and he says to him, he's like complaining about a current player on the team. And Knight says, with DeFord sitting there, you guys don't show any leadership. You don't show any incentive since you started getting too much welfare. Oh my God. So it was like the, with Bob Knight, it was that line. Is he kidding? Is he being a little racist? Is he just an asshole? And then the next like (laughs) paragraph in the story relates how it was some meeting that Joe B. Wright was at. And so was the head coach of the women's basketball team at Indiana. Who's a woman. He calls her a dumbass broad. He like walks up to her and says, you know what a DAB is? And she says, what's a DAB? And he says, a dumbass broad. And she says, and she says, like, oh, I don't know any, which is a pretty good comeback. And he says, oh, I think you know one more than you think you do. He's like in fucking public in front of a reporter. Bob Knight, everybody. Standing ovation. It's actually sort of amazing that, like, he, nev- he never ran into somebody that was more of a bully than he was. Because, man, it just, I just, I, when, whenever I hear about a guy like Bobby Knight and Donald Trump, I'm just like, how did you go through your entire life without getting asked kid? How did that happen? Yeah, and I think we like to, we like to think that people who behave in that way are going to get their comeuppance and aren't going to be successful. But he was extremely successful. Before he got his comeuppance. Yeah. He won three national titles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I guess it depends on how you want to look at the arc of his life. He got his comeuppance, but he's back in the place where he's most successful getting a standing ovation now. And so he'll probably, and as you said, he'll probably get a statue. So He, uh, he he did a good job at Texas Tech after it was over too. Like he got a job not long after he left indiana so you know he he did get right a footing back into major college basketball and he got to feel aggrieved and play the 
victim and talk about how everybody was wrong and he was right after the Indiana thing. And that's kind of where he's in his sweet spot. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you might want even more of the Hang Up and Listen Sports Talk program. In our bonus segment this week, we continued our conversation about Vic, the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary. I know that it's it's, it's often really frustrating uh, for people when they hear these stories about athletes, black athletes over and over again, losing their money, spending, you know, bringing people from their neighborhood along with them. But like in a lot of ways, people forget like that is the only honorable thing to do. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>